0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church Van Alstine. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Now here's Pastor Mike. We're in a Sunday morning series that we've called Hold Firm, getting a grip on the confession of our faith and in this series we're studying biblical doctrine teaching which guides our faith and practice and we believe is expressed and clarified for us uh, summarized for us in the Baptist Faith and Message particularly uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 as Ron mentioned earlier the key text the foundational text for the series is found in Paul's writing to Titus uh, when he said to him he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, remember, doctrine literally means teaching, uh, instruction on that which is taught. It is a developed set of truths or practices which are to be learned and followed. Uh, We have thus far looked at the doctrine of the scriptures. Uh, We would call that bibliology, the study of the word of God. What is it that we believe about the Bible itself? We have said that uh, we believe the scriptures are God's inspired and completed revelation of himself to humanity. God has sovereignly, providentially preserved his inerrant and infallible word for us. It is the foundation of all matters of faith and practice for us. It is our authority. Uh, we've looked at Article 2, that of God, uh, what we would call theology. Uh, we've looked at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've looked at uh, the doctrine of man. Uh, we've looked at salvation. We've looked at God's purpose of grace. Um, About three weeks ago, the last time that I preached, uh, we looked at Article 6, that of the church. And I wanted to remind you of what that says, particularly in light of where we are going this morning. Uh, This is not the complete article, but I want to remind you, it says there, A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Uh, Those are the things that we were just singing, that, that, that unite us. Uh, and that that is exactly what the article says, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them. here it is by his word. again, that is our, our foundation, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see how it all ties together. Uh, we believe that uh, it is vital uh, that we obey the great commission, okay. Uh, by praying, by giving, by by going, by sending, as Kyle uh, told us last week. Uh, we also looked uh, three weeks ago at Article 7, that of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two ordinances of the church. Uh, and then last week, uh, Kyle jumped ahead for us to Article 11, that of evangelism and missions. Today we're going to backtrack to Article Number 8, Uh, which is the Lord's Day. Now, if there was ever a good day for you to choose to come to church, this was the day, okay? Um, Because in some respects, it's going to seem like I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, You can sit there and say, well, I'm glad I'm here, okay? Um, But you might encourage uh, some of your friends or family uh, to listen to the podcast after it's posted. You know, those that aren't here today, that may be doing something else. And so, uh, this is what the article itself says. Article number eight, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance, it commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now there is a great deal of confusion about this matter of the Lord's Day. Some have erroneously called Sunday the Sabbath, uh, but the Sabbath Uh, is really the seventh day of the week. Others would suggest that the Bible teaches that Sunday has replaced Saturday and serves as a Christian Sabbath of sorts, but that is not taught in Scripture uh, either. Uh, Notice that the word Sabbath doesn't appear in this article. And so why do Christians then speak of the Lord's Day and worship on Sunday rather than Saturday. Now, you may uh, know someone, you may have a friend, a family member, who is a a Sabbatarian. They would worship on Saturday, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, for example. There are some Seventh-day Baptists who uh, are Sabbatarians, and they worship on Saturday and still view it as an obligation even of of New Testament Christians to follow the Sabbath. Um, And so then, why is it that we speak of the Lord's Day and worship on Sunday Rather than Saturday now, I just want to say that there's not a bad day on which to worship okay <laughs> there's not. Uh, you say well and, and in fact I hope that that your worship is not just relegated to one day of the week okay I hope that every day you find yourself worshiping And so with that in mind, uh, let's answer this important question and and, and understand, that the answer is really found in several biblical principles and practices rather than in, in any clear teaching or, or what we would call a mandate of Scripture. Okay, So if you're looking for a text that would say explicitly, you shall worship on Sunday, uh, you're, you're not going to find that. But, and so I want to I clarify some things. I want to make some observations uh, really uh, by way of introduction. First is this, Christians need to understand that the principle of a day of rest after six days of work, is rooted not in the law of Moses, but in creation. God was not tired, all right? If you have this image in your mind of after God creating the earth and everything in it, God was just like, whew, I am like exhausted here. I mean, Okay that that's not the God of the Bible okay God God was never at any point tired in that sense and so um, he needed no rest but he rested on the 7th day to provide a model for mankind Jesus himself verified this when he taught that the Sabbath is a gracious gift of God given for the benefit of man. We find that in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 27. And so since a day of rest is taught in creation and by Jesus, Christians should embrace the principle and observe a day of rest each week. I'm telling you, you should Sabbath. Um, I I think I've mentioned before um, a retreat that was especially meaningful to both Christy and I. Several years ago, we were given the opportunity to go to retreat at a beautiful ranch uh, outside of Mount Vernon, Texas, and uh, we had to agree to some things in order to attend this retreat with uh, really a select group of, of, of church leaders, and one of those was that we had to do a media fast so we couldn't take our, um, our computers with us and that kind of thing. We could have a cell phone, but only for the sake of emergencies and that kind of thing. Uh, and we had to agree to do a particular study, and the study that we chose was one on the subject of Sabbath and what that looks like in Scripture and, and how we can uh, observe uh, the practice of Sabbath. And it was a very refreshing time for us. We Sabbathed uh, while we were there. Um, Together, we read through the entire Psalms, and uh, we meditated on Scripture, and we prayed together. It was just a a very restful time. Uh, We live in a very hectic world that really knows very little of Sabbath, of hitting the pause button, of resting. God made us in such a way that we cannot continue to go at such a hurried pace uh, without there being some adverse effects. I think most of us would agree that when we make poor choices and uh, when we have wrong attitudes, many times it's when we are physically exhausted. I did not realize at the time we went on that retreat in Mount Vernon just how physically and spiritually and emotionally exhausted I was. Uh, I know there was another gentleman there who did chaplaincy work in the Herman Hospital System in, in the Houston area, and the first day or two that we were there, you would walk through the great room, and you'd find this guy kicked back in, in one of the leather sofas there, you know, head back, I mean, mouth wide open, just sawing some logs, man, I'm telling you. Um, you know, when we first got there, you could tell some of us were, were just, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe a little on edge. Uh, we, we needed that time. God's designed us that way. And so Sabbath is a good thing. Here's a second observation. Even though we should observe a day of rest, we are not bound by the legal qualifications of the Sabbath as given in the law of Moses. That law was for national Israel and included precise definitions of just how much work could be allowed. That's why the Jews debated, Uh, it seemed like constantly, such matters as whether they could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. Or whether they could break a dead twig off of a rose bush on the Sabbath. And you remember Jesus often ran up against this legalistic view of the Sabbath in his ministry. Why is it that you heal on the Sabbath? Why is it that your followers, your disciples do this on the Sabbath? He was always running up against this pharisaical legalistic view of the Sabbath. There's a third observation. There is clear evidence... That the early church met to worship on the first day of the week. Jesus was resurrected on Sunday, which was the first day of the week. And almost immediately thereafter, scripture records the church meeting on the first day of the week, John chapter 20. And this morning we're gonna look together at Acts chapter 20, or uh, Acts chapter 20. And so if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 20. Um, In his teaching on giving, The Apostle Paul instructs the Corinthians to receive the offering for the poor uh, saints in Jerusalem and to do that on the first day of the week. Uh, And so the Baptist faith and message here defines the Lord's Day as the first day of the week. And that chronological definition is correct, but the term Lord's Day possesses really a much richer uh, theological significance, The term Lord's Day really only occurs once in Scripture, and that's found in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 10, where John the Revelator states, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's Day. Now the term Lord's Day means day belonging to the Lord. Now make no mistake, all time, every day of the week, every day of the year uh, in its entirety belongs to the Lord. Okay, And, and part of the problem that we have in our current culture is that too many Christians are content to be one thing on the Lord's day and something else on other days. As if that's my spiritual day and these are my secular days. Or this is my spiritual life and this is my secular life. And we kind of compartmentalize things. And so if if you have this kind of division in your life, you're not understanding what scripture teaches here. It's very important that we recognize all of time belongs to the Lord, and yet the Bible marks out one day as belonging to the Lord. Why is this day unique? What makes it special? Well, uh, a few things here. The Baptist Faith and Message declares the Lord's Day as a Christian institution, that is, a day based on Christian principles. The Lord's Day is not the same as the Jewish Sabbath. So the Baptist faith and message uplifts the Christian nature of the Lord's Day by citing New Testament passages in support of this doctrine with the exception of one single um, citation from the Old Testament. So for the Jews, uh, to kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here, the Sabbath was a celebration of life. The Lord's Day, for Christians, celebrates resurrection life. The Sabbath commemorates creation of the cosmos. And you see that in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Christian worship rejoices in the new creation. Remember Paul said, as he wrote to the Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, right? And so uh, that's what we celebrate as we come together. The Sabbath celebrates redemption from slavery in Egypt, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Christian worship celebrates the redemption of the individual Christian from the slavery of sin. We see that kind of terminology in Romans chapter 4 as Paul writes there, Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2. And so the Jews, in in similar fashion, on the Sabbath participated in corporate worship, much like we do. The Christian, on the Lord's Day, participates in corporate worship. That's what we are doing here this morning. The Sabbath recalls the defeat of the armies of Pharaoh. Remember when the children of Israel were leaving uh, Egypt and uh, God miraculously delivered them from the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. Well, Christian worship recalls the defeat of the last enemy, that of death. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we'll have a, a service here at 2 o'clock today uh, for uh, a beloved couple, a part of our church family that were tragically killed in an auto accident on Thanksgiving Day. I'm so grateful that as I stand before those who will gather here this afternoon that I don't have to say, well, this is it. This is it, it's over, it's finished, it's done. I'm sure in some respects it'll be a sorrowful time, but scripture makes it clear that we will sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. And that's what we celebrate together. We celebrate that together corporately as we gather for worship. And so uh, while the Sabbath recalls the defeat of the uh, armies of Pharaoh, Christian worship recalls the defeat of the last enemy, that of death. And so while the Sabbath highlighted rest, Christians enter divine rest in Christ. Uh, it's a joyful uh, sabbatismos is actually the word. It's, it's through faith in Christ. We find that in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. You'll also notice here that the Baptist faith and message declares the Lord's day as a commemoration of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. All four Gospels declare that the women encountered an empty tomb on the first day of the week. All four Gospel writers record that for us. The Baptist faith and message correlates the Lord's Day with both public and private worship. So I mentioned earlier, John, he exemplified private worship. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, there in Revelation chapter 1. Acts describes, and we're going to see it here in just a moment, in Acts chapter 20, Christians worshiping together here in the city of Troas on the first day of the week. And Luke describes for us the elements of the worship time as as gathering together, breaking bread, And even with that, a reference to the Lord's Supper and the proclamation of the Word of God, or or preaching, we often call it. Luke's comment of the day on which the worship took place indicates that the first day of worship, or first day worship, was was a normal thing for these early Christians. Then, I want you to notice, though, that the Baptist faith and message limits Lord's Day activities to those commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Christ. now this is where the rub comes in quite often. Um, if you're like me, you probably have some friends, acquaintances, uh, that, that view uh, activities that are permissible or not permissible, maybe a little differently than you do. I have uh, dear friends, for example, who will not uh, eat at a restaurant on a Sunday. They believe that it violates their conscience under the lordship of Christ. It's their belief that in doing so, they would be forcing another individual to work on the Lord's Day. Uh, I've known of people, not many, but uh, they will do all of their food preparation on Saturday, which, oddly enough, is actually the Sabbath in, in preparation for Sunday um, with the belief. And then what they've done really is kind of mixed uh, Sabbath law with the Lord's Day. And so that, you, you see all these different varieties of different things. I, we've got friends who will not do any kind of uh, even leisurely type activity. They will not go outside and play catch with the football, play catch with the baseball, anything like that on the Lord's Day. Okay, And so what What gives? Uh, What what kind of guidance do we have? I mean, what what is it that... And so this statement, interestingly enough, that last sentence of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 represents really what is a radical change from the earlier editions of the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925 and 1963, which stated uh, that that Christians observe the Lord's Day, these, these are the older versions of the Baptist Faith and Message, by refraining from worldly amusements Resting from secular employments, works of necessity and mercy only being exempted. And so, in other words, ministry, okay? If you've got a friend who's, uh, as, as Scripture talks about, his ox is in the ditch, then, then you're permitted to help him on the Lord's Day. So that's kind of the way that it read in those earlier versions. And I assure you that a fairly significant debate took place uh, when this was presented at the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000, in June of 2000, many people viewed uh, this uh, this change as a compromise and a surrender uh, to the increasing secularization of American culture and Christianity. So the issue was one is one that we need to take seriously. What is it that we're to do with the Lord's Day? Dr. Al Mohler, whom I have a great deal of respect for, he has weighed in on this subject with these words. He says, sensitive and difficult questions relate to what Christians should and should not do on the Lord's Day. And Christians sometimes disagree. Imagine that. We sometimes disagree. Some argue that obedience to the fourth commandment requires that Christians avoid any labor or entertainment on the Lord's Day. Others, on the other hand, argue that the fourth commandment has been fulfilled in Christ and does not lay a burden on Christians about entertainment, necessary work, and other activities as long as time, priority, and full attention are given to the church gathered for worship. Now, this is not a new debate. All right? It's not a new debate. Uh, now, I mentioned in the early service, uh, which is uh, generally populated by more senior adults than younger adults. Um, if any there could relate to to with me in this, as I was growing up, after our family came to faith in Christ and we connected with a local church, I can never remember a time ever in my growing up years that we got up on a Sunday morning and my dad said anything to us along the lines of, "Hey, do y'all think we should go to church today?" That never happened. It was never a matter of discussion for us. It was always assumed that that's what we would be doing. I'm not suggesting that we never missed or that I had attendance pins that reached from my lapel to my kneecap or any, you know, there were times, obviously, that that we were missed. We were out of town visiting various things of that nature. But, but uh, unlike today, when many times it seems like it's just kind of an optional part of the religious experience, and so if it's convenient and we don't have anything more pressing to do, then we'll d- go to church. I mean, I regularly, as a pastor, I see hashtags on social media, Sunday fun day. And I'm not suggesting you can't have fun on Sunday, okay? I do. It's one of the funnest days of the week for me. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that, that if we're not careful, we can allow other things uh, to encroach upon what is to be prioritized as a day of gathering with the church for worship. I mean, to, to many in our culture, Sunday has just become kind of the second half of the weekend. And, you know, after all, we live for the weekend, right? I mean, TGIF. And Because that just means we're cruising into Saturday and then into Sunday and then comes Monday, right? I mean, that's how it works. So this is very, very important. This debate goes all the way back to the time of the apostles. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. The Jewish authorities had turned the Sabbath into a burden for God's people. Rabbis involved in pointless debates over what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Jesus even rebuked this kind of thinking when he told the Pharisees the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If you go to Israel even today, in hotels there in Jerusalem, you will find typically a Shabbat elevator. And it's designated that way so that when you get on that elevator, it will stop at every single floor. Because it is viewed that if you push a button to indicate that you want to go to a particular floor, floor that is a form of work which violates the Sabbath. Okay, do, do you see how detailed and uh, th- th- this kind of thing can get? Okay, so here's the thing: if we're not careful. We can transform the Lord's Day observance into acts of artificial legalism missing the entire point of the day. The Lord's Day is one of Christ's gifts to the church. And this good gift reminds us that true Christian worship is a celebration and that the Lord's Day should be a day of great joy and peace. Christians should strive to to order their lives in such a way that they do not neglect the priority of corporate worship on the Lord's Day. The writer of Hebrews makes it crystal clear, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That means we, we get together. And then you throw into this whole mix the common attitude today that you can somehow live the Christian life as a sort of lone ranger. So it's more common today to hear people say, "Well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church." Or I you know, I I'm 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 spiritual but I'm not religious, meaning I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion or the church. And there are a lot of things that can go into that ideology. People have, have been hurt, and I I'm not denying that. Um, but the truth is, you never find anywhere in scripture that we are somehow to live the Christian life apart from fellow believers. We're to do it in in cooperation with one another, in fellowship with one another. And I think we'll see that as we look at Acts chapter 20 here today. So let's look at the text. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. This is really, uh, many would describe this as the first mention of corporate worship on the first day of the week. And so we pick it up in verse 7. On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together, so Luke writing, he was then present. He's saying when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. And some of you think I preach long sermons, all right? Um, uh, he says that there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Okay, now I've preached a few people to sleep, but I ain't ever killed nobody yet, okay? (laughs) And and it kind of makes me feel good. If Paul can put somebody to sleep, then hey... (laughs) It says, but Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, this is obviously a narrative text. It's important for us to ask why it's recorded for us. Okay, it's not really prescriptive in nature. It's more descriptive in nature, and that's okay. Uh, we can certainly learn from it, be edified by it. Uh, why did Luke want to record uh, this particular story at this time? Is it to address the dangers associated with long sermons? I don't think so. In fact, um, if you're reading this text and you're thinking, and you're, you're doing the math here chronologically, and you're thinking, man, Paul preached like over 12 hours. Um, That's probably not the case. Uh, Certainly there would have been a proclamation of the word, of the truth, but the the original language would also indicate here that there was some dialogue going on. Okay, There was uh, likely some discussion about what was proclaimed. And so don't think this is this crazy prolonged sermon where everybody just sat and listened the entire time. That is probably not what transpired here. And so, uh, we can pretty safely say that's not what is being addressed by this text. Um, is the text uh, telling us where to sit or not sit in church? <laughs> I don't think that's the case either, although there's some very practical wisdom here. Um, we don't deal with this today because we don't have windows quite like they would have in that day. Uh, this was, would not have been a window with a glass pane in it or even a screen, most likely. It was just an opening in the wall. Okay, And there were some very practical reasons for why Eutychus probably would have chosen this particular seat. Uh, The text tells us that there were many lamps. Archaeologists would tell us that those lamps would give off an odor, and you can imagine it would would quickly get a little stuffy in there. And so that would have been a highly sought-after seat, is to sit there where there was a bit of breeze. And so it's for practical reasons that Eutychus probably picked that particular place to sit. Um, or is this text to uh, give us instruction on what to do in the event of an untimely death uh, during church? Um, this is also something I've never experienced, thank God. Uh, I am grateful that we have a safety and security team in place in the event that one of you uh, goes to be with the Lord during the worship service. Uh, we would have people who can step in and uh, would, would hopefully know what to do in that case, all right? Those aren't the reasons that we have this text, okay? Okay. Uh, some say that there's spiritual meaning here. They kind of spiritualize this text. They would say, well, Paul in this text, he uh, is a type of God who is long suffering and pleading with his people to come alive and do right, and Eutychus is the church that has fallen asleep or is dead. I, I, I can't go there. Okay, so then what is this really all about? First thing is this corporate worship. Corporate worship. Notice the beginning of verse 7. Luke writes, and he says, on the first day of the week. That literally means between the Sabbaths. On the first day of the week, we assembled, he says, to break bread. And here's the background. Paul is in Troas. Troas. Uh, He's trying to make his way to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. For whatever reason, Paul is in Troas for a little while. Um, Some have suggested that he may have been uh, gathering supplies for uh, continuing his journey. Some have suggested he was waiting out the winds to shift so that it would be more conducive to, to getting to his next location and so forth. Whatever the case, Paul is lingering here for about a week or so, and the Lord's Day happens to be the day before his scheduled departure. Okay, and so uh, Luke records that it's for that reason that he had a desire to pour into these people. Paul's going, I'm not going to be here much longer. I, I, I need to invest in you folks. Okay, so a, a big overarching theme that we see here is Paul's availability to the people in Troas. I mean, he, he's got some things that he wants to invest in them before his departure. I'm about to leave. So, so let, let's, let's discuss these things but they were gathered together in corporate worship. The church met regularly for worship, for edification, for exhortation. Most importantly, on the Lord's Day, they would get together and have a meal, and with that, the the Lord's Supper. And so they would have times of exhortation and edification from the Word. I believe this text is to remind us of this great truth. We are to corporately interact with God through worship. Now you can worship by yourself in the quietness of your prayer closet or your room or your spot out back or on your, tr- you know, wherever that may be. But that should not be the extent of your worship. We are to worship corporately. We're to gather together to, to, to worship. And so there's corporate worship here. Here's the second thing I want you to see. There's corporate fellowship corporate fellowship. These people were coming together, Luke tells us, to break bread. Maybe the idea here is of of what would have been known as the agape feast, the love feast of believers coming together, but also then with that the Lord's Supper. But included as a part of this glorious Lord's Day participation and cooperation would have been this aspect of corporate fellowship. The word, the word is, is koinonia, fellowship. That's the idea of coming together. We're, to, we're to, to fellowship together. The truth is we need one another. We need one another as followers of Christ. We're to encourage one another, to edify one another, to, to uphold one another, to rally around one another. Uh, and so there's certainly corporate fellowship. There's a third thing I want you to notice here, and this is where it gets a little different from what we would consider normal. And that is the corporate experience of the miraculous. Now I'm not suggesting here that this kind of thing would have happened with regularity in this early church. Okay, I don't think that it was a regular occurrence that people would fall out. The you know it's not like they went ah there goes another one. It's that third floor seat that gets you every time. You know, it's I'm not suggesting that. Now we do know that that. the, the, the way in which God was working in this particular time in history was a bit different uh, than the, the day in which we live. But suffice it to say, uh, these people had experienced the miraculous. Now get the picture. Eutychus, come to church, uh, I, I doubt he was expecting it, uh, but God was going to use him as an example uh, in the life of this church. So Eutychus comes in, he gets this, what might have been considered the best seat in the house, uh, he gets up in the window seat, probably to, again, keep from getting too hot. It's probably crowded, a bit dark, and even though they have lamps, and again, archaeologists would tell us that these lamps gave off this, uh, this odor of some kind. Eutychus has got this seat with the breeze, fresh air, everything. He's got the choice seat in the house, but he just cannot hang with Paul. Okay, Actually, the term uh, here to refer to Eutychus is that he was uh, just a lad. Um, probably somewhere in the age range of 9 to 14, somewhere around there. So he's hanging out in the window, and in the quiet, it gets the best of him. Now, over the weekend, we got to, to see our daughter play in uh, the annual Christmas festival there at Washtenaw Baptist University, and there was this family sitting in front of us, and they had a couple of uh, young men in their family. It looked like grandparents, maybe, with, with grandsons, if I just had to guess. But these guys were pre-teens. And uh, the, the first part of the program was a little more lively. It had some, you know, secular songs that, that would be easily recognizable, a lot of activity on the stage. And then they, they kind of segued then into this uh, more worshipful time. Well, w- when the mood and the tempo of the music and everything changed, this kid in front of me just checked out. I mean, I looked at him, he's just like, I mean, just like that. So that's kind of the picture that you get here of Eutychus, all right? Eutychus has just, he's hung all that he can. Those of you who have younger kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They reach a limit. They reach a point. Well, that's kind of what happened here. And it says in verse 8, though, that after this fall out of this third-story window, he was picked up dead. Let's be very clear. He died. Okay, the language here doesn't say that he was picked up as dead, or it was like he was dead, or he got the wind knocked out of him and it seemed like he had died. No, I believe that he was dead. He was picked up dead. Um, and so uh, if you're ever picked up dead, that's not a good thing. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, it's not a good thing. It, it, and if you're a believer, it's okay because then you're in the presence of the Lord. But if you're picked up dead, there's going to be a funeral. Okay, that is, that's what it means when it says he was picked up dead. But verse 10, we see something different. Paul went down. Okay, picture this in your mind. He's, he's, he's preaching or they're, they're having this discourse. And then Eutychus falls out the window. Paul says to himself, well, that's, that's not good. Um, so he goes out to where this, this boy is laying lifeless. Uh, you know, and, 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 and so it says that, that he, he embraced him. He, he picked him up in his arms. And then notice what he says. He says, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmed most likely there was already some wailing going on, okay? Now Luke being a doctor would have been well qualified to determine if this boy was dead or not, okay? And and in that particular culture, there would have probably already been those who would have started to, to, to give a, a visible, audible expression of sympathy and grief. And much, much like in our culture, if, I mean, if you came upon something like this, you would just be mortified and would just be... In fact, it actually ties back in to the word that's used in verse number one here of chapter 20, where it says, after the uproar ceased. This is, it's actually the verb form of that here in this text. Okay, and so there was already kind of a stir, as you can imagine, related to this, this Eutychus falling out the window and and dying there. Um, but, but then he's, he's, he's picked up, it tells us, and it says in verse number 11, um, and when Paul had, it says in verse number 10, rather, but Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. But then I want you to notice what it says in verse 11. And, and I want to make sure that I'm not the only one who finds this a little odd. It says, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. It was like they just kind of went back to business. I don't think that's exactly how it would have gone down in our culture, do you? I'm thinking if somebody dies in church, we're we're probably shutting her down for the rest of the day, right? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, this doesn't happen every day. Wow, you know, but you've got to remember God did something miraculous here. But it seems as if there's absolutely no disruption whatsoever except for this momentary problem of a boy dying mid-service. It's amazing to me that things just kind of pick right back up. Now, I think that's that's worth uh, observing. You see, if we're going to truly experience corporate worship, if we're going to truly experience corporate fellowship, if we're going to truly experience the miraculous in our midst, then we've got to come together as the church. And we, while we may not see something like this, understand that anytime a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and has their sins forgiven and their future secured through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his finished work, that is a miracle. That's a miracle. And we should we should become accustomed to experiencing the miraculous. It may look a little different. It may be that someone comes with a, an incredible burden that they, they they can't even describe, and they find freedom and 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 and, and just peace that only uh, that, that we just can't even understand or explain. That, that that's that's a miracle. The work that God is continually, regularly doing in hearts and lives, and the way that He's moving among us, we 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 should we should expect to see the miraculous of lives changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what the church is all about. But how do we do that? Well, you have to engage yourself in church. You have to. We need to dialogue more with one another. What if more of our conversations were, were, were less about the weather and our favorite sports teams and more about what God was doing in our lives through his word and by the Holy Spirit? And how my life was impacted and changed through the message preached. Well, this is what God was saying to me. Oh, really? That, you know, God kind of said the same thing to me. But then also this over here, there's something else. It was like, man, that, that's what's to happen here. And not just right here on Sunday morning, but throughout the rest of the week as we do life together. And we need to practice. We need to practice what it is we believe. We need to put it into practice. Uh, we were talking to Ashley over breakfast yesterday morning, and we were trying to get an idea of how many rehearsals they had had to pull off the previous evening's program because it was pretty involved. I mean, it was almost a two hour program, and there was a lot going on a lot of movement, a lot of music, a lot of. And we were amazed to discover that they didn't really have that many practices together. I mean, most of the people involved were accomplished musicians. They were asked to be a part of this thing. And so they, they know how to read music. They know how to play their instruments. But it was still, at the same time, important that they come together to practice. That's part of what the church is all about. Then I want you to notice finally this morning, corporate rejoicing. If you look again at verse number 12, it says, and they took the youth away alive, and the ESV here states it in a negative way, and were not a little comforted. So they brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. Now granted, he was alive when he came to church, But but then he got dead, and then he got alive again. Right? <laughs> that, that, that's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? it? Doesn't happen every day. Can you imagine him like the next day or two at school? Like so, I was at church and I fell out the window and I died, and then I but then I came back. I, wow! How does this is amazing? But but you see how they were comforted by what God did here through the Apostle Paul. Perhaps the the single greatest missing thing in the church is encouragement. Is encouragement. I had a kind of a unique opportunity that I really didn't plan for. I had the opportunity and the privilege of speaking to our ladies' Bible study on Wednesday night about evangelism and sharing the gospel, and I had indicated that we need to pray for those opportunities. Well, the next morning, I went over to McDonald's to enjoy a cup of coffee, and I was reading my Bible, and I just bought this Uh, New Study Bible, it's, it's pretty big. It's bigger than the one I even preach from here in the pulpit. I had it laid out there on the table at McDonald's drinking my coffee, and one of the employees from McDonald's walks over to me. Okay, here's an evangelism layup for you, and says, "'What book are you reading?' Okay, it doesn't always happen that way, y'all. Okay, I'm just telling you, but because of the previous evening, I had specifically been praying that God would give me some opportunities to share the gospel through the next week. And I'm not telling you that because I'm so, sort of a hero or I did anything. We ended up having a great gospel conversation. Come to find out his dad had died when he was younger, had not been in church for seven years. and so Now I'm praying, and you can join me in praying for Thomas. Okay, But I'm just telling you that, that we need to share those kinds of things Not with any sense of pride, but to encourage one another. To just encourage one another in our faith, in living out our faith. So what a privilege we have to corporately gather, to hear the word of God preached. What a a wonderful privilege to, to fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters. What a privilege to come together and expect the miraculous and see it before our eyes as God changes lives. And again, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear to us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's it's no secret that the darkness of the hour in which we live is bleak. It's dark. But we serve a God in whom we can rejoice and worship on the Lord's day. Who is a miracle working God. And so we celebrate We celebrate him. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church, Van Alstine. FBCVA is located at 121 East Marshall Street in Van Alstine, Texas, or you can visit us online at www.fbcva.com. Be sure to visit the Sermon Archive for more messages from this and other series.